I was rereading a book recently and was reminded that Christian writer Anne Lamont once wrote, the, different, the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Now think about that. The biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Because the temptation to replace God with ourselves is an old one. It's been around since creation. In fact, the book of Genesis tells us of a time that the tempter came to Eve and suggested that she eat of the tree of knowledge. Here's one of the things the tempter said. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It's an old temptation. We're reminded that at the very core of our human existence is the potential for a toxic problem. It's called pride. Pride keeps coming up again and again in Scripture as a problem. It's one of the seven deadly sins, as you know. But this is self-centeredness, which affects how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others, even how you feel about God. You begin to replace yourself as first in every relationship. Now, having said that, you might be asking, so what does this have to do with Daniel chapter 4? Well, in a word, everything. That pride, that self-centeredness, that tendency to replace God with self is at the core of what King Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with. Now, we're studying, of course, the book of Daniel because we want to learn about these characteristics that help us survive, give us strength for the journey of life. And there are the contrasts that we can look at, people like King Nebuchadnezzar, who show us not how to do it. Daniel has already made it clear in the first three chapters that he knows he is not God. He is the first one to defer to God. But the king still has not figured this out. And that's where the problems begin. So this morning we turn to chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. And initially, everything is going well. We read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my home in the palace. I was contented and prosperous. Sounds great. But then this addition, I had a dream. Now, if you've been reading Daniel, you know that King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams always present a problem. When Nebuchadnezzar is described in Daniel as being prosperous, that is not an exaggeration. Archaeologists have discovered 126 clay tablets, which are simply chronicles of the inscriptions that Nebuchadnezzar had put on all the buildings he built. 126 pages of inscriptions. This guy was prolific. And we know from history that the buildings were magnificent, amazing. You see, the city of Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the one behind all that. This city was surrounded by double walls, massive walls that ran for 20 miles. Historians, ancient historians, describe these beautiful gates unlike anything the world had ever seen before. These led into the city that was described as the most beautiful city in the world. So Nebuchadnezzar is kind of patting himself on the back saying, look what I did. But here's the truth. Nebuchadnezzar would take the credit, but it was slaves who built this. He was brutal. He had a massive ego. He was not about to give credit. He's like the pharaohs of Egypt, using slave labor, human life, 
to create something that was built as a monument to them. And you know from the story of the Exodus, of the Jews being released from slavery in Egypt, that God disdains that kind of attitude and treatment of his creation. But still, in spite of his power and command, Nebuchadnezzar, taking credit for everything, could not control his dreams. When he goes to sleep at night, his dreams begin to disturb him. One night, Scripture tells us that he dreamed of a big tree, a massive tree, the biggest tree on earth. Every other tree is like grass compared to this tree. Then someone from heaven cuts down the tree, leaving only the stump. And eventually, a shoot rises from that stump. The king, understandably, wants to know, what does this dream mean? So again, he asks all his advisors, and they tell him, King, we have no idea, except for one, and that's Daniel. So Daniel tells him, Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. I think at this point, the king's probably saying, well, that sounds about right. Remember, he has not only the most magnificent city on earth, but he has a huge ego. But then Daniel says, your majesty, you are also the stump. In fact, you will be driven away from people and will live among the wild animals until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Your kingdom will be restored to you when, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Well, now we have a problem because the king is sure that he rules, that he's in charge. He describes himself as godlike. And Daniel tells him, in no uncertain terms, that it does not work that way. Daniel, in today's vernacular, would say to him, quite frankly, Your Majesty, you are not God. Things, then, are going to go south, he tells them, until you acknowledge and admit that heaven rules, not you, Your Majesty. I think it's safe to say that most people would not say this to the king because, after all, this is the man who would have you and your family killed. He doesn't hesitate to toss those who disagree with him into a blazing furnace. But what's amazing about Daniel is he doesn't compromise. We talked last week about commitment. Here it is being lived out again. Daniel's integrity is evident. Even before the king... Now, Daniel is respectful when he tells him these things. In his respectful style, he says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. I hope you'll listen. But you need to renounce your sins by doing what is right. You need to renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. It may be, then, that your prosperity will continue. Daniel doesn't use the names of the gods that King Nebuchadnezzar worships. That's not his point of confrontation. The king is confronted by the way he treats people. That's first. All these building projects that he takes credit for are accomplished by slave labor, by harsh treatment of those under him. So God calls on Nebuchadnezzar to stop trying to play God with the lives of others. 
and to renounce his sins. You could translate this story into a contemporary setting. Because truthfully, in many ways, we're all kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. Paul writes to the Roman church addressing this problem that we've all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Paul talks about, Scripture talks about, certainly Jesus talked about change that begins with honesty, admitting that there is sin in our lives. But change takes more than an admission. Most of us are okay with admitting our sin on Sunday when the preacher's preaching and we're singing Amazing Grace and all those things. But there is that problem that sometimes we hang on to them on Monday and then we carry them with us through the rest of the week, which, of course, leads to more problems. So let me say this succinctly. Admitting or confessing our sin is only a starting point. But it is quite different from renouncing or repenting of our sins. Look at verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? I've built it as a royal residence by my mighty power. And for the glory of my majesty, me, I, it's all over the place. It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. There's no lack of ego here. But the king is off the rail. His filters are gone. He thinks he is a god. And that's when everything begins to unravel. Now, some of you are old enough, maybe most of you are old enough to remember Joe Namath. You remember the NFL quarterback? Do you remember the book he wrote? It was entitled, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow, Because I Get Better Looking Every Day. We call that ego. And I'd like to think that Joe Namath was being humorous, but knowing him, perhaps not. King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't joking. He really thought he was that wonderful. And notice that God gives Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. That means for 365 days, as you read in Scripture, the king woke up and chose to push aside his sin. It didn't bother him that he was destroying lives. He refused to change, and the reason was simple. He thought he was a god. Even with Daniel's intervention, he refuses. His massive, <coughs> excuse me, his ego remains massive until suddenly we read... Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. <coughs> this is cough day, isn't it? Now, this verse is a very poetic way of saying that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. He went insane. He became homeless. He became animal-like. The great Nebuchadnezzar, the creator of this great empire, whom Daniel asked one thing of, stop your oppression, is now living lower than those he had hurt. The king hit bottom. But today, as we've done every week, we're not really looking just at the king. 
We're looking at ourselves. You see, for Scripture to be relevant, we have to look at our own lives to say, is this about me? You don't have to hit bottom to turn your life around. You can begin by listening to your friends, listening to God, because God is merciful and God is gracious. Scripture tells us that over and over again. And God's intent, listen to me, God's intent is not to take you down, but to save you from your destructive tendencies. But if we ignore God, if we pretend that we know better, that we're as wise as God, then God does accept our choice. The problem is when we choose that the choice we make can be disastrous. You see, the choice to ignore God, to let God fade into the background, caused King Nebuchadnezzar to become unglued. God is always trying to get our attention to send that message to us. You are not God. Though we tend to think that, we get quite proud of ourselves sometimes. Pride does get in the way, and it does go before a fall. One of my favorite stories about pride is Don Shula, the old NFL coach, was famous for leading the Miami Dolphins for many years. He told the story of going to the movies with his wife in a small New England town. As they walked into the theater, there were eight people there, and they all stood and cheered and applauded. Don turned to his wife. He said, Honey, I guess there's no place in America where I'm not known. At that point, one of the men in the theater came up to them, shook Shula's hand, and said, We are so glad you're both here. Because the manager of the theater said he would not show the movie until ten people were here. Your numbers nine and ten. I think she will learn that he was not God. So what happens when we finally let go and let God be God? Daniel tells us what happened to the king. It took seven years, but the king is restored to sanity. And then we get insight into the mind of the king because he shares. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. My sanity was restored. Now that phrase, raise my eyes towards heaven, is not, it does not mean simply looking up. This is much more powerful. The king is letting go of his ego, his need to play God. Nebuchadnezzar is finally seeing reality with clarity. And if we're honest, we are not much different. There are times when we want it to go our way. We want the world to revolve around us. We want to live according to our wishes, our pleasures, our desires. And we don't want God to interfere. But the problem is, when we try to play God, it creates problems. And problems have a tendency to create confusion. Confusion can lead to insanity. I don't know about you, but I look at the world we live in right now, there's a whole lot of people trying to play God. And it looks insane sometimes. And there is a different way to live. What I love about this story is change is seen in the king. He says, then I praise the most high. Now, before his statements were I, me, myself. Now, there's a different perspective 
I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. He does so with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You could see a huge shift in Nebuchadnezzar's understanding. Do you know why Nebuchadnezzar found peace? Because he resigned. He quit. He quit trying to be general manager of the universe. He let God be God. The king of Babylon finally let it go and said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt, glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And then he adds this. All those who walk in pride, there it is. There's that word, that problem. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let me suggest to you that one of those important realizations in life is to come to the point where you admit that you are not God. But that leads to one of the most important questions in life. How then do I get it right with God? How do I put God first in my life? Because some of you would say, but I feel like Nebuchadnezzar now, with brokenness, confusion, perhaps some sort of living insanity, a life out of control. It begins with an admission. You are not God. That you need to let God do the leading. It begins with saying yes to the Lordship of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus. It begins by saying yes to following God. Some of you may feel like it's too late, or maybe you feel unworthy, but that is never the way God feels. God offers again and again, infinitely, his grace, undeserved love and forgiveness. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. It doesn't come about by what we do, our works. None of us can boast about that. I want you to know that there is hope. There is always hope. There is peace. There is forgiveness when we turn our lives over to God. It's very simple. Let God do the leading. Follow God. Receive God's love and God's forgiveness. I will tell you it will make all the difference in the world. An eternal difference. It will change your very life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who steers our ship, who is our compass for life, who shows us the way, the truth, and the life. And forgive us, and we've tried to take over, to be in charge or be in control. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and to know then that all will be added as we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, he had been through some terrible times, perhaps times when his ego got in the way, but certainly there was tremendous loss in his life. You have to wonder, how did he get to the point where he would say, It is well with my soul? I think he asked the question, What is my core identity? And he finally didn't identify himself in the stuff of life, 
or even in the people around him. But he saw his core identity in that question I talked about last week. Do you know that you're a child of God? That you are loved beyond measure? That's your identity. You are sons and daughters of the King. Do not let pride get in the way, but walk humbly with the Lord. And look what he will reveal to you, the joy that he will bring you, the strength that he will give you for living. As you go now in peace and go in love. Amen.